0: With Dr. Good evening and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Holakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So last week, you might have noticed I didn't do any shows, and it's because I got COVID last week. It was my first time uh, getting it during this pandemic. wasn't too pleasant, but I'm also fortunate it didn't get too bad for me. Uh, but didn't do any shows last week. Because of that, and made the schedule a little bit um, all over the place, so I'll explain that to you now. Uh, I'll discuss a book tonight, which was the book of the week from last week, but the book of the week from two weeks ago uh, is Worth the Risk by Dr. Kristen Lee. And so I was supposed to have Dr. Kristen Lee on the show last Wednesday, But because I had COVID and was just sick and then also couldn't obviously go to the studio, we had to push it back so uh, Dr. Lee, thankfully, can make it on Wednesday's show. So kind of flip-flopping things. Uh, Two weeks ago, this book will be on Wednesday's show. Tonight, I'll talk about last week's Book of the Week. So that's Worth the Risk by Kristen Lee. I look forward to speaking with Dr. Lee on Wednesday to talk about her book, The Book of the Week. From last week that I'll be talking about tonight is Queer Ducks and Other Animals by Elliot Schreffer, The Natural World of Animal Sexuality, Queer Ducks and Other Animals. And I might be saying that name wrong, Elliot Schreffer, uh, apologies for that. I am saying it wrong. Uh, The book he has written is really, um, I think, quite an important one to read. I saw him interviewed, and as soon as I saw him interviewed, I ordered the book instantly, because in this book that he actually has geared towards young adults, even when I was ordering the book, it was in the young adults section, I think it's really a good book for anyone of any age to read, to look at the diversity of sexual behavior in the animal kingdom. Because often one of the things you'll hear people say, arguments against uh, homosexuality or the LGBTQ community is that it's quote-unquote unnatural that this is something wrong or bad because it doesn't exist in nature. It's just part of human you know, mental illness, which it has been classified in the past and still in some uh, ways is, uh, but some type of a perversion, something immoral, something in childhood that went wrong that leads to these types of behaviors because it doesn't exist in nature. We don't see this in the animal kingdom. And what this book does is it paints uh, a very nice picture of how that is not the case and how in so many animal species we see behaviors that are not purely heterosexual that don't fall into this way of thinking where there's just uh, males and females and they just have heterosexual sex to produce offspring and that's it we can see that it's much more complicated than that. And I myself, in I remember in undergraduate studies, learning some things about sometimes in certain situations, if there isn't access to females, maybe some males will, will be sexual with one another. I did learn about the bonobos, which he talks about in this book, who are very similar to chimpanzees and how they seem to have a hypersexual type of a, um, experience. in in nature, and even though we see them in captivity, uh, but that these seem to be some types of rare exceptions. That was my understanding. And so it was interesting for me to read this book because I wanted to see how much uh, that was not the case, that it was not some kind of exception. At one point, I think he said something like 1,500 species to date uh, have been seen to have non-heterosexual types of encounters as part of uh, their natural existence. So it really takes any uh, weight out of that argument that it is not natural to be anything but heterosexual, totally out of um, the equation of trying to understand things. And there's a lot of really nice quotes throughout the book from different scientists and and authors about these topics, but one uh, he quotes often is this author, Bruce Bagamill, who wrote an important book on this topic of the diversity of sexual experiences in uh, animals. And this quote is uh, from one of the first chapters, and it goes like this, a history of the scientific study of animal homosexuality is necessarily also a history of human attitudes towards homosexuality. A history of the scientific study of animal homosexuality is necessarily also a history of human attitudes towards homosexuality. Bruce mill. And so what we see is, and I, you know, I've discussed this on shows recently, that we tend to think of science as this purely objective thing, where it's just the search for the truth, the capital T. Uh, it's objective, there's a scientific method. And so there aren't these issues of bias or emotions or judgments that go into it. It's just purely observation and study. But we see that that's not the truth, or if that's not the case. We do try to apply this scientific method to reduce or remove as much as possible the biases that might get in the way of seeing the truth for what it is, for being as objective as possible. But at the end of the day, we have to recognize that it's humans that are doing science. And humans have biases, humans have their own weaknesses or subjectivities that are going to affect what they see, the questions they ask, how they interpret the data that they see, and a whole host of other ways that the biases get in the way of seeing things objectively. And so when we look at the study of animal sexuality, we see that often observations were made. Well, first of all, the observations were not made because assumptions were made. So if they see two animals together doing something that looks like mating, it was just assumed it's a male and a female. And sometimes some animals, because they're monomorphic, meaning that they look similar, even if the the, uh, individuals of a different sex still look similar, we might not be able to determine if it's a male or female, male, male, female, female that are interacting. But there was assumptions being made that it was always this heterosexual type of a behavior expression. But also even when behaviors were observed where it was clearly something not heterosexual, we see that people did lots of things. One is they themselves doubted it or considered some kind of aberration. Uh, At times they didn't want to publish it because they themselves felt bad about it or felt weird about it. Or at times even they were met with skepticism and attack by the scientific community when they were reporting their results. People saying maybe you have some kind of perversion yourself or you're making some kind of a mistake or how could you say that these beings are engaging in this type of immoral behavior. Uh, He did mention the title of one article which illustrated this, which was talking about the something like the moral depravity of butterflies, or that uh, butterflies lowering their moral standards. So we can see that looking at their sexual behavior was not just observing what they're doing, it was judging it as moral or immoral, um, which of course is going to impact how we even observe these types of uh, behaviors and what we, we understand about it. So, That was a very powerful point that runs throughout the book, is that we do have to be aware of this, that sometimes we think because it's science, it itself becomes like a religion where we think there's not going to be mistakes or biases or whatever is out there they're going to observe objectively. Um, But then we tend to see that there's so many times where science can get things wrong, or that there's cultures within science and there's different things that affect um, how things are observed. And we've seen this, for example, when uh, men and women have been studied and the differences that are found also when we look at races and how they've been studied and things that have been quote-unquote proven to be true about differences turn out to often be more about the biases of the scientists rather than the reality that exists in the world. So he goes through a variety of types of animals. The first chapter is on a type of bug called doodlebugs, and it's interesting because he kind of has a pun Talks about uh, doodling each other as in some kind of like a sexual act, kind of making a joke. I do want to actually uh, write the author and let him know that uh, doodle has kind of a, a meaning in, in the Farsi language or in a playful way. Um, but this was one of the first instances of seeing homosexual behavior between animals back in, I think it was 1834, um, of seeing two males having sex. And again, the expectation or the explanation was that, okay, there must be something going wrong here, which again shows the bias. So it's not just, okay, this is something they do, let's understand it. It's this expectation that because it must be wrong to do this, they're making a mistake or it's some kind of a mistake that these animals are making rather than this is something that they are doing. And so we see that there was this controversy within the community of individuals who study bugs of saying, okay, there must be something wrong here, or let's try to understand this in some way, rather than recognizing that it could just be the two are having sex and they know what they're doing, and they're still choosing to do so. It doesn't have to be some kind of aberration or something wrong. Um, The next chapter talks about bonobos. And so, as I mentioned, bonobos are interesting because they are, along with chimpanzees, the animals that are most related to human beings. Something like 98%, 97% of our genetic uh, information is similar to those of chimpanzees and bonobos. And chimpanzees and bonobos are very similar, of course, but different in the way that they deal with certain things and that the bonobos tend to be much more sexual in how they act. And it includes male, male, female, female, and, uh, and of course, male and female interactions, and the female-female actually is the most common type of sexual behavior that's observed in um, bonobo groups, Um, and the explanations, of course, we try to understand why it's happening, it's as the whys are going to include our own value judgments, but we can see that by having these sexual relationships and encounters with one another, it acts as a type of social glue, uh, bonding, that is is created within them. And so there's an interesting study that was done that they introduced honey to chimpanzees and to bonobos separately, studying them. And they found that when they did so with the chimpanzees, they quickly, the males who were the most youngest and strongest took control and through aggression, made sure they got the honey, which is a very prized. of food item. But then when they did this with bonobos, it was quite interesting that at first they got a little bit tense and even were showing their teeth and shrieking. They didn't know what to do. How do we deal with this um, enjoyable food, but how do we split it? And they first engaged in what he himself in the book describes as some kind of an orgy, where they were sexual with each other, and this led to some calming down, and then they were splitting the honey much more calmly with each other. So we see that the bonobos tend to use um, sex. There's actually a quote in here that says, the chimpanzee resolves sexual issues with power. The bonobo resolves power issues with sex. So we see that sex as a behavior, as an activity, leads to a type of bonding and likely can be caused by the resulting oxytocin that's released when we have cuddling or sexual activity that can then lead to types of connections and coalitions and relationships that can be beneficial in other ways. So, we see that in the bonobo, one of our closest, if not closest, uh, biological or genetic relatives in the animal kingdom, we see a whole diversity and variety of sexual behaviors and sexual interactions that include male male, male female, and female female um, interactions and behaviors. So, the bonobo is one that I was familiar with myself in college um, in a human sexuality class with psychology that seeing that they uh, were this way, and I remember actually my professor then, it was a type of uh, argument that was not as, uh, I guess, accepted possibly then, about, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, but that sex was no longer just about reproduction. We could see that it bifurcated to include pleasure as a, another purpose of it. And so we can see that it's maybe not just pleasure, but these different ways that it can relate to Um, social connections and social bondings in bonobos who even might be closer to 99% identical to us from a DNA standpoint. So after the break, I'll talk a bit more about the different types of um, experiences that he discusses in this book, looking at the animal kingdom. And as I said, it was quite eye-opening because I think most of us, I can speak for myself, assume that almost all animals just behave in heterosexual ways, that sex is just about reproduction and there's nothing else going on, anything else is some kind of a mistake, aberration, or has some explanation to it, but that it's actually much more complex than that. So after the break, I'll continue the discussion on Queer Ducks by Elliot Schreffer. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So, I was discussing the book Queer Ducks and Other Animals by Elliot Streffer. And I started by talking about the doodle bugs that he talked about in the bonobos. And then he goes into bottlenose dolphins, who um, have what can look like almost exclusively homosexual behavior. Some males will only be with males, they will then mate at times with females. The rest of the time they're with males and have sexual activity with one another uh, at some high rates. Sometimes uh, the young males will have sex on average of 2.38 times an hour, and the majority of that with other males. So we see a highly sexual um, animal in the bottlenose dolphin, and often in including homosexual sex or sex with teen, I should say, same sex sex. Um, as he talks about in the book, when we look at homosexuality, that can make it seem like a preference for, and we can never really know what a animal is thinking or feeling or what they're doing exactly. We try to understand it, but we can't say. But we do see a lot of same-sex sex that happens in the bottlenose dolphins where they have these long relationships, sometimes in small groups of males that are essentially together all the time or most of the time they are together. So we see um, an extensive amount of, what would look like homosexual behavior to the outside, Well, we would look at in that way, uh, another example of non-heterosexual types of behaviors that exist in the wild, in the natural animal kingdom. So, again, you can't say it's something unnatural. Uh, then he looks also at Japanese macaques, who are monkeys. Maybe you've seen them. Um, some of them, they're, they're these monkeys that live in the very cold part of the world and... Um, and they actually live in the hot springs, or that's how they are able to survive there. But we see a lot of sexual activity between females there. And there have been explanations that they tried to come up with, but we're not able to find anyone that really fits the behaviors that were being observed. For example, things like dominance demonstrations. So that's something I've heard before, too, that if you see, let's say, two males and one is mounting the other one, it's only as a sign of dominance, uh, aggression to show a hierarchy. And although that does happen, it's not the only reason we see males mounting males or females mounting females. It's not always a dominant demonstration. So again, some of our assumptions um, go out the window as we actually look at what they are doing. Uh, Or reconciliation, as we saw in the bonobos, it didn't seem like that fit for the Japanese macaques because sometimes they would actually be sexual more before conflict rather than after. So it doesn't seem to be about reconciliation. And so we can see here again that it might be that it's more about what they want to do uh, in a pleasurable sense rather than it has some specific um, evolutionary way of explaining why it leads to the next generation. This homosexual behavior or these same-sex interactions might not fit into the old narratives that we thought of when we look at behavior, sexual behavior with with animals. And then we also look at deer. And so some deer um, can change sex, or there's some males that stay between female and male, kind of like intersex, or even the title of the the chapter is, are there trans animals? And so you see that these deers, um, known as velvet horns, are kind of like intersex, meaning that they're not quite male, not quite female, and they're somewhere in between, and they play a role in, in, the, in their community. Um, that's quite interesting when you get into how they're not exactly male and not exactly female, which again doesn't necessarily mean that being trans has some moral value or doesn't, but it can show us that when we think of it as something that doesn't exist in nature, that is not at all the case. Um, and then there's also rasp Fish, who change sex, and so Sometimes, when we look at the animal kingdom, we'll talk about an animal being an, a hermaphrodite, meaning that it uh, can change from male to female. For humans, that's less commonly used now, he discussed. Usually, you'll hear the term intersex um, for so, uh, an individual who's not quite sexually male or female. But we see in the ratfish, they will change um, sex. And they can even, you know, there's animals like the flatworms who are sequentially hermaphroditic, meaning that they have the male and female sexual organs, each individual, and it's an interesting way that they reproduce That It's essentially who can uh, impale the other one with their penis first will then um, be the male in that dynamic or will will be the one who expresses it in that way. So it's interesting seeing this, again, the diversity of animal sexual behaviors and experiences don't fit into this purely heterosexual viewpoint that I myself thought was almost the whole majority of animal sexual behavior then we also get into animals where we don't have to just focus on sex but the way that they pair bond and the albatross which is a bird with one of the largest wingspans i think over six or six and a half feet where we sometimes see female female bondings where they will at times mate with males but they themselves might be together almost all of the time and even um, do some types of rituals and how they mate with each other or How they court each other, which is kind of like a dance, and they touch bills and they bow their hands and bow their heads in certain ways. So we see that they have this type of courting behavior. That most likely, if you didn't know, going back to the old assumptions, you'd assume it's a male and a female, but it's often female and female courting each other in this way to create this type of bond that often is a lifelong type of a bond. Um, But then they will raise young together. So it's kind of like these. Uh, lesbian mothers of the animal kingdom, and there's others like them, um, but the albatross displays this type of a connection and relationship um, that we, again, might not assume would exist until you read about it. And I, again, didn't know about these types of relationships. And so as he talks about in the book, there's there's individuals who have relationships where they don't have sex either. They might even be married and be in a relationship. And so we can see that, again, this diversity of re- sexual relationships or bonding that we Think we see uniquely in the human experience might also exist in animals as well, uh, but we might not have been aware of that. Then he talks about bulls, where it's interesting because it's such a masculine type of animal in the animal kingdom when you think about bulls, that it's often used as a sign of virility and masculinity and strength, but there's often bulls who are aroused by deer, or um, males who've been castrated will be who they are more... Um, attracted to. And because inseminating the females is such a big business, because we have such a big dairy business and meat beef business in the United States, it's a very costly thing when you have a stud, they call it a, a stud dud or a dud stud, who does not want to mate with the females, but they try to find ways around that. But it's interesting to see that in this very masculine, what we think of as masculine, and usually, especially in the United States, when we think of masculine, we Think of not gay because that would be a threat to masculinity because of our homophobia. Um, But we see that the bull can be performing what is a homosexual act or same sex act, um, and might even some of them might only be aroused by other males, uh, something that I again was not aware of. Um, And so, yeah, the book goes through these different types of animals and experiences ducks and geese, another one where we see these throuples at times or um, individuals who might be three people all in one group being together, um, and it's quite fascinating. And so I really enjoyed the first, just the research that was put into this book and looking at different behaviors of the animal kingdom that I was not aware of, which was very eye-opening for me. Um, and, you know, it, it's interesting because, as I said, often an argument that's been used against non-heterosexual types of experiences and relationships and individuals even is to say that it's not natural, meaning that it doesn't exist in the animal kingdom in nature, which to begin with, saying something is not natural and then saying because it's not natural makes it immoral, itself is considered a naturalistic fallacy and something we have to avoid, because that's not the case. Even in an interview, and I think he mentions it in the book, I heard the author saying how well reading is not natural. It was not really part of our um, evolutionary past or history but it was something that's become, obviously, something we consider quite good to read. Or even lots of medical interventions are not natural in what we do in saving lives, but we think of them as really wonderful things. So, have to be very careful not to associate natural with moral and what we consider unnatural or we can't observe it in nature as being immoral or bad. But here, even if you use that argument to say that um, non-heterosexual individuals or behaviors are bad because they're not natural, we see that that's not the case. We see this whole range of diversity uh, of types of experiences that animals display in the animal kingdom. Um, There might be something that he talks about called a bisexual advantage, that it might be beneficial to be bisexual in in many animals to um, not miss mating opportunities, to also create and facilitate bonding of different kinds. So it might even make sense that most animals or many animals are bisexual rather than purely heterosexual, and the same might be true about humans as well. So to use that argument that we can't, um, you know, we can't justify or accept certain behaviors because they're not natural, that doesn't work. And what's interesting is then people go the other way. They say, well, yeah, if you see it in animals, well, we're not animals, so we, we shouldn't do those things that animals are doing. And so uh, the point he's making in this book is not to say that it justifies one way or the other, Um, but I'll read from you. Uh, This is close to the end of the book, one of the last pages. This is Elliot Treffer in the book Queer Ducks. This book, like almost all the articles I've read on queer animal behavior, does not try to argue for queer human sexuality from the example of animals. Instead, it's the reverse. What I'm saying is that we can no longer argue that humans are alone in their queerness, that non-heteronormative human sexualities and gender identities are unnatural because they don't exist in the rest of the animal kingdom. That position is simply not valid, end quote. And so I thought that was really powerful and uh, important to to see that. Um, And I think it's so interesting because what we think of as natural, when we think we know something, like the animal kingdom, as I said, I had my own assumptions before reading this book, that we think we know it, we think we know what's natural. And it feels, you know... When we feel something, because it's automatic, it seems like it's something very real. Well, it just feels natural. That feels wrong. That feels unnatural. Um, That feels immoral. And if it feels that way, it must mean something. And it can mean something, but it doesn't mean that it's some kind of ultimate truth. It can mean that you've been exposed to a culture and exposed to ideas and arguments that have made it seem like something is very true that might not be the full truth. I've made the same argument talking about something like money, which we can say it's a social construct, but then people say that it makes you feel something. If I say, show you a a wad of money that's in the denomination of whatever country you're in, you feel something intensely because it brings up things of security and power and, and, and all sorts of other things that obviously have some type of emotional value for us. So it just seems like money itself has to be something significant. And we do the same thing when we look at heterosexual or non-heterosexual or non-heteronormative humans, where we think, well, that's something unnatural because for a lot of your life or your whole life, you saw certain things and were told this was right and other things were wrong. But it does seem like in our society, in particular in Western society, we've made some assumptions that were not always the case, and we've made certain assumptions that weren't always the case. Now, somewhere in the book he had a quote that, uh, or a statistic that something like 64% of societies throughout human history have been accepting of non-heterosexual types of relationships or behaviors. So it's not this thing that's always been this way and we only see things this way. And it can be so hard to be aware of the things that we've internalized since childhood and realize that they aren't some type of truths or some types of things that can't be challenged or some things that are just purely natural or real and recognize how much of it is influenced by Whatever our forefathers and ancestors believed, especially in a certain region or area. So, this is a wonderful book. As I mentioned, it's written to young adults. And he beautifully, in the interview and in the book, talks about how he himself, at 11 years old, became aware that he was gay. He said he saw his brothers, Rolling Stone, and noticed his, the magazine, and noticed that he was paying attention to the Fruit of the Loom ads and looking at the boys. And he felt some kind of connection. It was wondering, okay, which one of them would I want to be my lifelong, uh, you know, companion or buddy or something like that. And so he knew he was, in that way, quote unquote, different. And he wanted to try to understand it. And being very bookish himself, looked in encyclopedias. And unfortunately, he said everything he found was that it was something unnatural, something perverse, something wrong. That. It was either from too much love or too little love from moms or dads. There wasn't quite an agreement. But everything points to this fact that it was something unnatural and bad and wrong. And he said it took him a long time to reach acceptance about himself and his sexuality. And he's hoping that a book like this would have have done him a lot of service in seeing that who he was and how he was was not unnatural and bad. It was just part of actually uh, experience of of different animals and beings, including humans. And there was nothing wrong or bad about him, and that he could be accepted and accept himself just the way he was. And so I thought that was quite beautiful that he wrote this to an 11-year-old self or himself at 11, but obviously knowing that there's other youngsters struggling with the same types of questions about themselves and who they are, and that it's going to help them hopefully recognize they can be accepted as they are and who they are. So it's for young adults technically in a sense that it's classified that way, but I read it and thought it was wonderful and highly recommend it to anyone um, to read this wonderful book, Queer Ducks and Other Animals by Elliot Schreffer. I hope you will check it out and, and read it for yourself. All right, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, last week I didn't do my shows because of uh, getting COVID and um, wasn't a horrible experience, wasn't a great experience either. I'm grateful though that I did not get too sick. Uh, made me grateful to all the scientists, researchers who created and developed the vaccine, um, and the boosters that I took that I'm sure were very helpful. And, and it was interesting to go through the experience of it, it was my first time actually getting it. I know, um, Sometimes you'll see some funny memes or posts about how, how we possibly avoided getting it this long. And I was one of those people. At least if I ever had it, I was asymptomatic and didn't know about it. But this time I got it and, and, and felt it. And it's, it's scary at first. You know, of course, you know, many people have died. Millions of people have died. And you don't know exactly how your body is going to respond. So that first night, I remember feeling this anxiety of, well, where is it going to go? Is it, how much worse is it going to get? And those first two days and nights were pretty rough and I didn't feel very good and just slept and rested and, and, and tried to drink. And as much as I drank, I still felt dehydrated. Um, but it uh, started to get better and still feeling better. I wouldn't say I'm 100% yet. feel pretty much 100%, but just thought, it'd be better to do the show from home to not expose anyone um, at the radio station or in general just leaving the house in case I am still contagious in some way. Uh, but the experience was a, a rough one in, in those kinds of ways, and being isolated um, was not pleasant either and still have been that way, so definitely feel that cabin fever that you can feel being stuck for a while, but also grateful that I get to be stuck in a place that's more comfortable in than many people might feel stuck in or get stuck in at different times. So there's those experiences that I had. But also when you have something like this, a medical, even if it's a blip, even if I didn't get that sick, it does tend to bring up some existential types of questions or feelings uh, facing your own mortality when you get some kind of an illness. And so I definitely had that as well, that it made me reflect on lots of things from, I wish I took even better care of myself health-wise, uh, when I, especially when I was not sure how sick I would get, because the less healthy you are, the more anything can hurt you, including something like the coronavirus. So I knew that I could have possibly done more, or not possibly, definitely could have done more, to protect myself to to face something like this. So that was there, that regret, and it's such a tough feeling when you have regrets like that because it's too late when you have the feeling, like, oh, I wish I did this, I wish I hadn't done certain things, but it's too late now. And so I, I'm hoping to use that as motivation going forward to to take care of myself, but that was something that, Definitely came to my mind. Um, I also watched a lot of TV because I couldn't do a lot much else. I did read the book and do other things like that as well, but I did end up watching a lot of TV, and I had an experience watching uh, a, a comedy special. And it was on Netflix, Norm Macdonald. It's called Nothing Special, which is a, a funny name um, for a special because usually people try to make them sound very special, but I think it was very um, relevant to how he was, Norm Macdonald that he titled his Nothing Special. And he passed away, I think it was within this last year. I I forget when it was exactly. But he recorded this early in the pandemic because he was dealing with cancer and didn't know how much time he had left and actually recorded this special um, the day before he was going in for some procedures. And so when you watch it, it's kind of like a Zoom call because it's just him in front of a screen with his face really as close up, with headphones on, and he's talking into a microphone, but it's almost like just seeing someone on a Zoom call. Um, but I thought it was quite funny, and I, I laughed a lot. It actually laughed out loud, which usually when you don't have an audience, you laugh less. I mean, I was even alone, so that's even more. But if you hear the audience laughing at a comedy show, it makes you laugh more, but there was no audience here. It was just him talking into the camera. But I thought it was quite funny. But I thought it was also powerful that his friends were talking afterwards, a few comedian friends, that people that knew him, Dave Letterman, Dave Chappelle, uh, Adam Sandler, David Spade, Conan O'Brien, and Molly Shannon. And they were discussing things about him, you know, who he was, things about the special itself, and of course, you know, reminiscing on him as a person. Um, And the fact that he did this, he he had the sense that, you know, I want to make sure I don't have any regrets or get everything out and have... Put this stuff out there and i thought that was quite nice that he he did that that he wanted to make sure he shared more of his art or shared what he could with the world knowing that his time is limited or he felt more of a keen sense that his time was limited all of our times uh, is, is limited and what we have on this earth um but that he wanted to make sure knowing that he might not have a chance that he he does this and so seeing both of those things this um his friends talking about him and actually how we could see he didn't tell anyone, which is kind of sad. He didn't tell people he was sick. Almost no one knew, including these individuals who were his close friends. Uh, and they noticed some things like he would cancel plans a lot or, you know, uh, Dave Chappelle says they took a picture or he didn't realize that he actually smiled for the camera and it was the last time they saw each other, that there could have been these ways that he was saying goodbye to them uh, without saying goodbye or without he himself saying it but they later realized this was his ways of saying goodbye. And what you always notice is when people think about dying or death or recognize that life is finite, it tends to make us more kind, you know, more loving to one another when you recognize life and the fragility of it all and that it's going to end, even though, yes, sometimes when it comes to fighting for our lives, it can bring out some not-so-good parts of us. But generally, when we face death with a type of acceptance, we tend to become more kind to one another. And so you saw that, that he was they were saying he was a kind person in general, but even this kinder side came out. And also this sense that he didn't want to leave things unsaid, both to people, but especially in having this special and, and, in, and sharing that with the world, that he wants to share his gift, his art with, with the world in this one last way of creating a special, but the, the circumstances were far from uh, ideal. Uh, specials are usually in auditoriums with a big production. This was again, if you watch it, it's basically, uh, uh, you know, a glamorized Zoom call, not even that glamorized. It's just basically him in front of a camera. There's some shots from a second camera. Really, it's just that. But, you know, he wanted to make sure it was put out there. And So that also made me think of this other part of when we consider our mortality, which is to take risks or to not live with regrets. Um, And I I really believe strongly in the sense that I I saw from Irvin Yalom and Marilyn Yalom in their book, uh, A Matter of Death and Life, that death anxiety is correlated to the amount of regrets that you have. The more that you regret things, especially that you didn't do, because that's usually what our regrets are in your life, the more you will be afraid to face death. Yes, there's the existential things of what's going to happen to me. Is there an afterlife? If so, what happens, good, bad, is it, you know, from this religion, that religion, beliefs, whatever it is. We have all sorts of things that come up existentially in that way, of course, when we look at death anxiety. But we also have this sense of did I use this one life of mine appropriately or did I live a meaningful life? That I live a life of purpose, and this is why I often say happiness to me is very overrated. We're always talking about how do you be happy, search for happiness, and these you know tricks to be happy. And I'm much much more concerned with fulfillment or living a life you feel content about, because that's what life really is. You're going to look back and feel about your life a certain way, and that's going to be more about. Was it a life of purpose and meaning and fulfillment? Not did it feel good. And it doesn't mean a meaningful life won't feel good. It will likely have lots of moments that that feel good. And if you pursue the right things, it's actually going to feel very good. For example, investing time in relationships and experiences, those will lead to, I think, what are the best feelings we can have as human beings, best feeling in the sense of longest lasting, not just some kind of a high that you can get from a substance or a superficial experience, but those most meaningful types of happinesses that we can experience are pleasant feelings, but that our driving force isn't what just feels good, but it's what's, what is good or doing the thing that is good, doing the thing that is meaningful, which if we can boil it down in two big things, I would say is creating good relationships which is close relationships, intimate relationships, loving relationships with the people that you're close to, which is always going to be quality over quantity. So doesn't mean having necessarily thousands of friends, but having a smaller group of friends and family that you are close with and have a high quality relationship. So having good relationships and doing good things, which doesn't just mean kind acts, I think it would include that, but also expressing of yourself your talents and your gifts and sharing that with the world, having the sense as if when you leave this world, you've given everything you've got, just like an athlete who finishes a game and, and he or she leaves feeling like I gave everything I got. I left it all on the floor. And that feeling that I've given everything. I think that to me is one of our goals in life should be that, that we build ourselves up It's this simultaneous building and giving because It's not like you just have this set gift and you can give it. You develop your gifts and your talents and abilities. Individuals go to school for many years to, let's say, become a doctor and then keep working on that craft to help people more and more. And so whatever your gifts are, and it might not just be one thing, uh, but whatever those gifts and gifts are, to build those up and to share those with the world as much as possible so that when you are leaving this world, You've given everything you have. You've left it all on the floor. I mean, that's what we want to be striving for, to, to have good relationships and to good do good things. And so when I watched this Netflix special and I ended pretty late at night and I was going to get ready to go to sleep. And for some reason, this phrase came to me, um, which kind of solidifies or boils down a lot of these things that I'm talking about and for some reason just stuck with me since then. It was, I think, two nights ago. Um, And that was, be kind and take risks. And it kind of became almost like this motto, or I thought actually, uh, when I do the show, usually I have certain ways that I end the show, um, but that it could be something I say when I end the show, be kind and take risks. Because I think that's something that I would uh, give as advice to anyone, including myself, to be kind to others, show love to others, and also take risks. Because I think that's something that, people tend to regret more than anything as they get older and when they get to older age is they didn't take so many risks. They didn't try things. We're afraid of getting it wrong so much that we don't do anything, and then we regret, well, what would have happened if I got it wrong? Nothing really. Some moments or moments of embarrassment or facing some kind of experience, but I would have grown through that as well. So I just thought of that as a way of um, something that hit me during this Experience of the pandemic and watching that special, and it kind of just came to me and it stuck with me um, since then. But as a type of advice that I would give to anyone, myself included, of, of living a good life, if I had to boil it down and in a few words, that's what I thought I would say. So, to any of you who've gone through COVID and still dealing with it, I'm still kind of dealing with it. Um, I guess I'm part of that club now. Uh, I know it's taken many lives, so I was fortunate again to not get very sick during that process was not so bad. had many people showing concern and helping me through the process, so I was very lucky. Um, Hopefully you won't get it if you haven't gotten it, but wishing everyone the best in that sense. And hopefully I'll be feeling better and be back in the studio Wednesday to interview Dr. Kristen Lee about her book, Worth the Risk. Um, And as always, a big thank you to Amir in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Valid Holakwi, be kind and take risks. Have a wonderful night. Ninety-four-seven KTWV HD three, Los Angeles. I'm Zimov.